0: to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Amen. It is great to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. When we gather together, we are his house. We are his temple. I see some people we've been praying for back with us. Virginia and Lydia are back. I empathize with you, and I'm so thankful for God's hand of grace on your lives, bring the healing, and uh, we just want to continue to pray that, uh, for healing and God's protection. because you know. And it's Virginia's birthday, so she got to come back on her birthday. Happy birthday, sister. Ripe old age of 29, 27, we said 27, 27 years today. Uh, I also want to just right out of the gate thank everyone that helped us with the prayer and worship night on the National Day of Prayer. It was an awesome event, uh, gathering together with believers across the city. And for those that came early and stayed late to help us set up and tear down and participate, we want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, I just believe and love our passionate brothers and sisters in Christ that call VLC home, who have this drive to be driven by love, to be committed to excellence, and who want to bring the kingdom of God down into Clio, Michigan, and the surrounding areas. And so it's awesome to participate and be a part of a church family, passionate for what God wants to do. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Today uh, we're, we're continuing in our journey through the scripture and the great romance we will be in numbers chapter 28 But we'll also be jumping around so the verses will be on the screen as well as the notes on the YouVersion version Bible app on the alive events page So if you have a hard time um, or following along you can follow along there They'll be there for you and uh, I'm excited for t- today's topic today's topic begins to kind of dive into one of my more favorite things to talk about in scripture as we venture into this great romance because we're beginning to look at prophecy and not just like the prophetic gift, but literally prophecy revolving around the end time events, God's God's plan that he's been working out since creation and what he is showing us through the, the stories of these people what we can look forward to. In The future they were they were looking forward to events in their future then some of those took place and now we're looking for future events in this story is beginning to unpack what that is that we are looking forward to as we are looking at the prophetic events that foreshadow not only the first coming but also the return of Jesus Christ are you excited for that day that is the day of the Lord it is our blessed hope it is what we're hoping and praying and working so hard for when the kingdom of God literally comes from heaven to earth. Wow. No more COVID. Amen. No more crying. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more late night and early morning fights with your spouse. You know, No more dogs leaving presents on the carpet. You know, but We're talking about the time of perfection where there is no curse on the earth. This is the day we are hoping and praying for. And, and this is why, beloved, if I, can, if I can impart anything to you, the time that we have together, you know, it's never a guarantee that who you begin a church with, you'll end with. I've seen a lot of people come and go. There have been a lot of people that have started, that have moved on. God's moved them away. There have been deaths. There have been many things that bring us together and also lead us apart. So if I can impart anything to you, In your spiritual life, it is to study the Word of God. It is to get rooted and built up in the Word. A casual reading of Scripture is not enough to catch everything that the Lord is giving you. What He is laying down, you will not pick it up if you do not study the Word of God. Just reading it is not enough. Paul tells Timothy to study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman does not need to be ashamed. Why? Because he can rightly divide the word of truth. He can unpack the scripture. When he reads a passage in the New Testament, he knows why it's there. And he can interpret it. He can communicate it. He can teach it. A workman doesn't need to be ashamed. And it takes study and time with the Holy Spirit to discern the truths in the Word of God, His Word that He left for them at that day, and how it applies for us today so we can hope for tomorrow. It's so important that we study the Word of God. In Numbers chapter 28, as God is continuing to work with the nation of Israel, they haven't quite made it into the promised land yet, but they're getting closer and closer every day. Day in numbers 28 God gives Moses a list of festivals or feasts that they are required to observe throughout the year there are seven feasts in total and if you think of Matthew Mark and Luke as the scholars call them the synoptic Gospels the reason why it's called synoptic is because Matthew Mark and Luke tell the same stories they just tell them from a different perspective And each of them include a little different information. So uh, if you read a story, the story when Jesus casts out the demons from the demoniac called Legion, in one story, it's one man, in another story, there are two present. It's because you have two different writers writing from two different perspectives, and each one, depending on what audience they're writing to and the purpose for why they're writing, will give you clues and information that will apply to what they're trying to communicate. So you have a little different nuance in each of those books Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy are similar as in Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy are telling the same story in the same time period but each one has a little different focus so you will get some overlap on some of the stories that you're reading and some will include information that the others don't include because of the circumstances that they're writing about. So here, we're going to look at, as we look at Numbers 28, we're actually going to jump back to Leviticus to begin to see how the Bible is introducing these feasts to us and their prophetic significance. In Leviticus chapter 23, here's what God tells Moses. He says, These are the Lord's appointed festivals. Celebrate them each year as official days for holy assembly and presenting special gifts to the Lord burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, liquid offerings, each on its proper day. These festivals must be observed. Somebody say, must be observed. So there's no choice here. You don't get to opt out of these. You must observe these seven feasts. Now, they had other things that they celebrated, but these seven were not an option. There was an intention. There was a purpose. In addition... To the Lord's regular Sabbath days. So there is no way around it. As they went throughout their year, marking their calendar were seven specific festivals or feasts that they would have to observe. And God instructs them on how to sacrifice, what was required within there. But look again at verse 37. Again, it says, these are the Lord's what? The Lord's appointed feasts or appointed feasts festivals so God didn't just tell them you know when you're hanging out in the promised land you're gonna get real bored so I'm gonna give you seven things to do just to help you occupy your time God doesn't do that he says these are appointed which means they are specifically chosen there is an intention behind what he is saying and knowing this this is, knowing, this is key in Scripture in understanding what he's beginning to say, because these aren't run-of-the-mill parties. These are appointed, sacredly chosen. Why are they appointed? This is why knowing Scripture is key, not just casually reading, because if you just casually read the story, you'll, you'll blow by this, and you'll completely miss it. This is why understanding aspects of the Bible is relevant to your understanding. Um, I heard somebody once say, uh, it was a pastor or a teacher at one point, he describes the Old and New Testament this way. He says, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Because much of what is in the New Testament was unknown to those who lived through the Old Testament. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Which means the events that happened, you don't actually understand their purpose until you read the New Testament. So there is a symbiotic relationship between the Old and the New Testament. That's why, you know, if there's a Christian that says, well, I don't read the Old Testament because I'm in the New Covenant, so I just read about Jesus. They will, at best, be incredibly ignorant. At worst, at the absolute worst, they will be grossly and sadly mistaken. It requires a foundation, the Old Testament and the New Testament, to get the story, to get the revelation that God is teaching. And the New Testament churches, the New Testament writers are writing the, the New Testament. Think about it. Paul says all scriptures inspired by God. Do you believe that? Did you know the New Testament didn't exist when he wrote those words? The words he's referring to is the Old Testament. The New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament, right? So the scripture they were studying, the the teaching, the doctrine Jesus was giving his disciples was based out of the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. They were living the New Testament, and at some point in history, they recorded their experiences, the things they'd learned, and that's what became the New Testament. So the Old Testament is vital to the Christian faith. It's inseparable to the Christian faith. The New Testament reveals to us what the significance of the Old Testament is. And this word appointed, God said, these are my appointed feast." We get the revelation in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. What's that say? A dim preview of the things, the good things to come. So what was he saying? He's saying everything you read in the Old Testament didn't just happen then, but it was a shadow. It was a picture. It was a, it was a glimpse into what God was going to do later. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul says this specifically about these feasts. He says, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain what? Holy days or... He continues new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths for these rules are only what shadows of the reality which is to come and Christ himself is that reality what's he saying he's saying everything you read is a prophetic revelation there's a literal fulfillment it actually happened they actually did these things but they give us a glimpse into what Jesus was gonna do when he comes and not just when it, what he was going to do what he will accomplish when he comes again. So it helps us look back and say, wow, this is what you did, Jesus, as we look back, and then we look forward and say, wow, this is what you're going to do when you come back again. It inspires awe and wonder of how the greatness of who our God is. Just as I'm looking at the, the study, I was just overwhelmed in awe of who God is, how awesome he is you ever just get struck in your heart just thinking about the Lord? Like, like seriously, the, the scripture says God's greatness is unsearchable. When you see everything God's been able to accomplish in this broken world, it should make you step back and say, Hallelujah. 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 So the New Testament reveals the Old Testament. It's the why behind the what. And these weren't just simple commands. No, God had a purpose. He had an intention, which was to use them as a prophetic example of something that would be fulfilled in Jesus. And I want to look at the two first two feasts today because they're closely uh, connected. You start one, and then the very next day begins the next. So they almost run simultaneously. We're going to look at the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Numbers 28, verse 16, here's the simple command. God tells Moses, on the 14th day of the first month, you must celebrate the Lord's Passover. That's it. And we know what the Passover was. We think back to the time when they were in Egypt and how God rained down the plagues and before they were able to cross through the Red Sea. There was one final plague. The death angel was coming. And if you wanted to uh, be saved and not be uh, like destroyed by the death angel, the death of the firstborn, you need to kill the lamb the way God prescribed, paint your doorpost with the blood. And all those who had the, door on the, uh, the blood on their doorpost, the death angel would pass over and go on by and move on to the next house. That's why it's called the Passover. And so... Here that he commanded them on the 14th day of each month over the first month of the year you must celebrate the Lord's Passover in the book of numbers goes into detail about how to celebrate but it leaves out the instructions already given to Israel in the book of Exodus so it gives us a little extra information but then it goes on to describe the very next festival almost in the same thought which is the festival of unleavened bread somebody say unleavened bread The festival of unleavened bread so during this um, during this feast not only did they have to kill the Passover lamb eat its meat be cautious not to break any of its bones they had to specifically bury it in a reserve a designated place use its blood to paint the doorpost on the you know the top and the sides of the doors they did before they crossed the Red Sea when they the next day when Pharaoh finally let Israel go They didn't have a lot of time to pack. It was like a grab it and go. It's like anybody have a bug out bag for like emergencies? It's like what you grab when you got to get out of town real quick. You're like, we're going to get this we're going to get out, right? Like in case of a fire or something crazy. They had to grab whatever they could get and go. Matter of fact, they went door to door on their way out and got loaded up with all the jewels of Egypt. I think that'd be pretty cool. Like my house is burned down. I just go next door and get everybody's money. I mean, that'd be pretty fun. But uh, that's what they did. So God commands them in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's like, you bake your bread, but don't use any yeast. You don't have time to let it rise. So all your bread must be without yeast, and this is the bread that you will eat. So they happened kind of simultaneously. Now, we touched on the Passover quite a bit earlier in our study, uh, but Paul again says these things were written as a shadow of things to come. The importance of these stories are not simply to record a history of a Middle Eastern people, but to tell us the story of the Savior that would come. Now, if you think of Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not just the enemy of God's people. Pharaoh was a representative of the pantheon of Egyptians' gods. He was the one. He was actually considered the son of the gods or even a god himself. And so if you think about Pharaoh, just as Pharaoh had the boys of Israel killed to try to come against the people of God, so Herod at the time of Jesus Christ had the boys two years of old or younger killed to try to come against the Messiah. But there's also one who is coming that is prophesied in Scripture. Some believe has already come, but my, my view is that we're still awaiting this individual. Is an individual who's coming who will also oppose God and his people Sets his sight on the people of God to wipe them out And Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3-4 through In 2 Thessalonians, here's what he says He says, don't be fooled by what they say For that day the return of Christ will not come until there's a great rebellion against God And the man of lawlessness is revealed The one who brings destruction He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. There is a Pharaoh-like person coming in the future we call the Antichrist that one day will rise to power. The Bible says that he is going to be at the seat of every kingdom of the world. He is going to rule the world. And if you look at the way our world is working, and coming together there's this huge effort to bring the nations together that we'd be all under one umbrella starting with global warming and and uh, climate change the climate accords brings everybody together on the, uh, under the authority of a global power for climate change there's this leaning to uh, setting the stage for the rise of this individual to come and this man of lawlessness commonly known as the antichrist will not only arise and be a ruler But he will not only claim to be God, he will oppose God and the people of God and act harshly against the people of God. So just as Pharaoh oppressed Israel in slavery, and God heard the cries of his people, the Antichrist is going to oppress the people of God, and God will hear the cries of his people. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. I love how my wife read from Revelation today, and she's like, I don't get a lot of it. It's okay, because I do. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It it takes a lot of study and there's a lot of opinions, but there's some things we do know very clearly in Revelation 6 9 through 10 When the lamb broke the fifth seal I saw under the altar of souls All who've been martyred for the word of god and for being faithful in their testimony And they shouted to the lord and said "O sovereign lord Holy and true how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our what? Avenge our blood for what they have done to us The persecution of the Antichrist is going to come against the people of God. Contrary to popular belief, the people of God don't skip out the rough stuff in the end of the Bible. But we, as we are faithful, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says this very thing. And they defeated him. Who is this? It's the devil, the power behind the Antichrist It says, the one who had the power of death, we see that in Hebrews 2, that the devil was defeated by Christ at the cross who had the power of death. And how did we overcome him? How did we defeat him? By the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. It says they did not love their lives so much we were afraid to die. Is there another event where the people of God overcame death by the blood of the lamb? In the story of Exodus. The blood of the lamb goes on the doorpost and the angel of death passes on by and they are able to overcome now the question is who or what is the lamb it's important that we don't just assume things we need to ask questions when we read the Bible so who or what is the lamb referring to Revelation 5 6 again it says I saw a lamb that looked if it had been slaughtered but now it was standing between the throne and the four living beings among the 24 elders and he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. So here we have a vision of this lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. It's a thing of nightmares. All right. That, that's kind of crazy. You're like, oh, a little sheep. Oh, a little, you know, seven, seven, seven eyes on that thing. What happened? <laughs> Evolution didn't treat that one very well, you know, but It's representative. So the, the eyes and the horn represent the sevenfold spirit of God, who, as a lamb that was slaughtered but is now alive forevermore, anointed with the spirit of God. Who is that in heaven? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We know this because John one twenty nine, as John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says something specific. He says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, look, the what? What's he calling? The lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is referred to the Lamb of God. We know Jesus is the Lamb who was dead and is now alive forever and ever. What's amazing is that even before we get to Egypt, even before we get to the story of this first Passover, there is another Passover. There's another story that foreshadows what God would do for his people and it's the story of Abraham. Do you remember Abraham in, in the book of Genesis? God bless Abraham. One day you w- you're, you're deep sleep. You know you wake up, you're groggy. You're barely stumbling in the bathroom. You're, if you're a guy, you're lucky to make it in the toilet. If you're a lady, you don't got to worry about that. But, you know, you're 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 just out of your mind. You're brushing your teeth, and all of a sudden you hear a voice. Abraham. I don't know if I had some bad pizza the night before, you know. I want you to go to this land that I will show you. Okay, where is it? Just go. And I'll let you know when you get there. Well, God, Google has this great app called GPS. If you just tell me the coordinates and, you know, the route, we'll find the best route. We'll get there real quick. No. Just go. Okay. You're gonna have to tell my wife that because last time we tried to move, we had a little situation. So, you know, she she likes to know where we're going. Nope. Just go. And the man does it. And he stays married. Can you believe that? That's a miracle in and of itself. They finally get to the land that God is going to give them, and he says, Abraham, because you're faithful to us, I'm going to bless you. Through all the the nations of the world will be blessed through your line. This is going to be great. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham gets impatient and has a son out of wedlock. And God says, no, that wasn't my plan. You know, that's not going to work. I'll bless them just because they're connected to you. But there's a son coming between you and your wife. And they are 90 years old when they have their first child. That's another miracle that Sarah didn't die in childbirth and that they were able to see this boy grow up right so here they have this son isaac you can imagine waiting your whole life you finally have the thing you've been wanting your whole life god said i'm gonna bless you i'm gonna make you filthy rich and abraham said what does riches matter if i don't have an heir like he wanted a child more than he wanted wealth fame fortune all of these things And so he says, what does it matter? And God says, fine, I'm going to bless you with the sun, and and I'm going to make you more numerous than the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. They finally get the sun. Abraham has a deep sleep, wakes up one morning, does his business, is brushing his teeth, and God says, Abraham, you know that boy I gave you? Oh, yes, God. Thank you, thank you. I want you to kill him. Come again? Put yourself in a spot, right? Really? (laughs) Okay, God. Because you asked, I will do it. And I believe if you let me kill him, you'll raise him up again. The man had so much faith. That's why he's the father of our faith. He walks his son up. He puts his son on the altar as his son is saying, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham keeps working, prepares, raises the knife, and the angel stops him. And Genesis 22:12, he shouts to Abraham and says, Don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way, for now I know you truly fear God. You have not withheld him from me, even your son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up, and what he see, he saw a ram, which is a male sheep, caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering. What's that say? In place of his son. The sheep dies. So that death can pass over Isaac, who is one of the fathers of the Israeli Israeli people. God is referred to as the God of Abraham, say it with me, Isaac and Jacob. If Isaac had died, so would the people of God. But a lamb allowed death to pass over. On Mount Moriah, which is a foreshadow of a time when The lamb would be slain, and the death angel would pass over, and they'd cross the Red Sea, which was a foreshadow of a time when the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, would walk up Mount Moriah and be crucified again so that the death angel could pass over us. Which prophesies of a time when Jesus is going to return, and death will be no more. You see it's not just for them It wasn't just for israel It wasn't just for a date 2000 years ago. It's also for our blessed hope what we're looking forward to The ram, the male sheep was sacrificed in place of his son Romans 5 9 says since we've been made right with God And made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. He will certainly save us from God's condemnation Look at this scripture very carefully Since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, it says we've been made. That's past tense. But then it says we will certainly be saved. That's future tense. When Jesus gave his life, we were made right. When he returns, we will be saved. We will be delivered from all this nastiness. Once and for all There are two applications for the coming of jesus for the blood that is shed There is a past and a future tense and when he comes He will save us from god's condemnation. What does that mean? What is god's condemnation the scriptures also translate that as god's wrath? When does god pour out his wrath? He pours it out when he judges the earth in the bible in the book of revelation it calls it the second death when Death and hell, the devil, his demons, those who have rejected Christ, all are cast into the lake of fire. That's his wrath. It's eternal separation from God. It says we, the beloved, will escape the second death, God's judgment and wrath, and we are ushered into everlasting life. The moment we see Jesus face to face, when we stand before the Lord, we will receive a in this body that is destined to die, our bodies will be changed into a body that will never die, and death won't have a claim to us ever again. In 1 Corinthians 15:55 and 56, Paul says specifically, "O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? For the sting, or for sin, is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. There is a day coming, beloved, when death will pass over once and for all." And we will never attend another funeral. We'll be alive forevermore. And what's powerful, it's interesting, is here it says, For sin is the sting that results in death, but the law gives sin its power. Again, death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. But interesting in verse 56 is that he connects this idea with also the law. And we know in the law there was a feast, the feast that begins the next day after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they couldn't eat any any bread with yeast. In Numbers 28, 17, again, it says, On the following day, the 15th day of the month, a joyous seven-day festival will begin, but no bread made with yeast may be eaten. The number seven is significant. as a time of completion. So the sacrifice is given. The, the atonement is made, death is passed over, and there's a time of completion whenever uh, this, this feast is going to be made. And the significance of this feast is you can't eat bread with yeast. And it's celebrated again how quickly they fled from Egypt. But the point that we read in the New Testament, Jesus illustrates what yeast represents. In Matthew 13, in a parable, he says this. He says, The kingdom of heaven... Is like the yeast a woman used for making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, what's that say? It says it permeated every part of the dough. Though she only put a little bit of yeast in part of the flour, it permeated all of the dough. Just a little yeast is enough to corrupt everything. This is the principle of corruption, and it's linked to sin, false teaching, everything that distorts the truth of God or pulls someone's heart away from the will of God. We know in James chapter 2, verse 10, James says this. He says, For the person who keeps all of God's laws, who's perfect in every way, except one law, one infraction, one little bit, is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. That means... We can't get to heaven on our own. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Just a little bit is enough to infect the whole thing. So even out of ten commandments, you keep nine, you're still guilty. So what happens with this feast is first they celebrate the Passover when the blood is applied to the doorway of the home, but then the next day they sweep their house clean of any of the elements that could cause corruption. When the blood of Jesus was applied to you, when you placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the blood of the lamb was applied to the door of your heart, the doorway of your soul. But then something else takes place. Isaiah 1:18 says, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. There is a cleansing that takes place. The spirit of God moves in. And the sin moves out. Colossians 2.14. Beloved, this, if you let the reality of this verse set in, this should make you weep. Colossians 2.14 says, He has canceled the record of charges against us. And he took it away by nailing it to the cross. They celebrated the Passover, and then they cleaned their house. Jesus came in and cleaned our house when he went to the cross. He took it away all the corruption every record against us this is why you can go boldly before God's throne even when you feel in the dumps because you know you just messed up and now you're feeling guilty and shame and all how could God love me and all this stuff God knew before time everything you'd ever do and at the cross because of your faith in him it was canceled it's deleted it's as far as the east is from the west when God looks at you he sees the righteousness of his son he went into your spiritual house and cleansed it from all corruption. Isaiah 64, 6 says something really interesting. He says, we're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Like when we try to promote our self-righteousness, our goodness, and we think we're looking good, think again. Because of sin, that corruption, our best looks like filthy rags. It looks like junk. Imagine it, it, if... We, our clothes, our apparel, if they pattern themselves after how righteous we were. So like, you wake up in the morning, you haven't had time to make any mistakes, your clothes are all pressed and clean, you get into the car for just a quick trip down the road, you hit the highway and you you get to your destination, you get out and they're all wrinkled and tattered and torn because that little moment of road rage got the best of you. And your clothes are now a wrinkled mess. They're snagged. They have holes in it. And you look, and some people, their clothes are frayed and rotting off their body. You see, the scripture says our righteousness are like filthy rags. You can't dress it up. You can't make it better. If we all look like on the outside what was a reflection of what was on the inside, many of us, most of us, if not all of us, would never even leave the house because we've all sinned and fallen short. But Galatians 3.27 says we who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like wearing new what new clothes which means the filthy rags got draped on my Jesus at the cross and his spotless rags got put on to me in salvation when the bible says you're clean You are cleaner than clean. Clorox can't even touch it. You are cleaner than clean. Because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. My wife read this passage during worship. In the last days, we see Jesus face to face. And those who call on his name are gathered in this group that's called the bride It is the bride of jesus christ and when we're gathered together with him we come to a feast it's called the wedding feast in heaven in glory but before we sit down with the lord In verse 7 of chapter 19, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She's been given the finest of what? Pure white linen to wear. Your filthy rags are gone, beloved. They're gone. You've received the white linen to wear. The fine white linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Deeds done now in the name of Jesus. And the angel said to me, write this, for blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. The Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world has also taken away your filthy rags, and he's given you new clothes to wear. The clothes of God's righteousness. In the end of days, when we see Jesus face to face, we will s- truly see the reality of what the Lamb of God did in the Passover. And in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he has cleansed us of all corruption. The corruption that had power over us has been removed. Amen. Now, I want to show you two things that bring this story to life in our day day, and our every day. That connects with our faith, and we'll try to go through this quickly But I want to show you again why Bible study is so important because there are a lot of things that we believe that are actually not true The first I want to show you is at the time Israel finally gets into the promised land They begin to develop as a nation They go through the book of Judges and then into the Kings Finally, uh, ultimately they begin to fall away from God, and it leads to the exile. And so during this time, before they're, they're kicked out of the promised land, God sends prophets into the land to call Israel back to repentance. You've, you've strayed away. You've broken your covenant. Come back. God wants to bless you, not curse you. But they didn't listen to the prophets. But one of the prophets, the prophet Micah, he prophesied about the coming of Jesus. And this is what they would do. They would, they would prophesy, judgment is coming. God's wrath is coming to the nation unless you turn back. But amongst the condemnation, they infuse it with promises of redemption. Yes, this is going to happen. Yes, this is bad. But the Messiah is coming one day. Hold fast. Come back to your faith. The Messiah is coming. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, here's what Micah prophesies. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, or only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. There is one who is from the days of old, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who holds all things together by the power of his command. He is going to come from you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, what's significant about this is in the time of Israel, there were two Bethlehems. There was one that was considered the city of David. That's where David the king was from, who the Messiah would also come from, the tribe of Judah. And there was another Bethlehem. So this, this term Ephrata is a marker to let you know exactly which one that the Messiah would come from. And that's helpful because sometimes God just tells us to go and he'll show us when we get there. Right here, Here's a GPS. Just before this, in Micah chapter 4, talking about the restoration of Israel in the Messianic age, he tells us not just in Bethlehem Ephrata, but where in Bethlehem Ephrata the Messiah is going to come, where the kingdom is going to begin. In Micah chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And you, O tower of the flock, somebody say, Tower of the flock. Now, this is important, right? On you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion that shall come, the kingdom of God, the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This king, this Messiah, is going to come not just to Bethlehem Ephrathah, but to the tower of the flock, which was a, sp- a specific location in Bethlehem. It was a location that was just outside the city of great importance. There were other... Go ahead and show that picture up on the screen. I've got a picture for you. So this is one of the towers in the place called the Tower of the Flock. Literally, it's a tower. And there are several of these in this area. Why is this significant? Do you want to know why? Are you interested? All right, get ready. When David became king, and David's line was prophesied to be the line the Messiah would come from, David is from Bethlehem. That's where his people are from. When David became king, he moved the Ark of the Covenant from its resting place at the house of Obed-Edom because they had lost it in battle. They finally got it returned, but now he's bringing it back to Jerusalem, changing its resting place from the city of Shiloh to Jerusalem, the new capital of Israel. And so now it's got a permanent place. He erected the tabernacle, and then later Solomon would build the temple to be the permanent location for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what's important about this specific location is that in Jewish tradition, in the Midrash, this is the oral law of the Jewish people, at this location, the Tower of the Flock, Is In Bethlehem Ephrata is the location that they raised the sacrificial animals to be sacrificed at Passover and the day of atonement And what would happen on these holy days is the priest would come and inspect the lamb And they had to find a lamb without spot without blemish When they chose the lamb that they were going to choose they did not put a leash on it and walk it to jerusalem They didn't put it on a cart and cart it there. They wrapped it in swaddling clothes and then brought it to the temple for the sacrifice. Why did they do that? It's because they didn't want to risk injuring the animal. They would carry it all the way to the temple. And according to this prophecy in Micah, it wasn't a stable Jesus was born in. He was born in the tower of the flock. And you might think, well, I've celebrated Christmas every year of my life, and he's always in a stable. Beloved, the Bible never says that. It's not even in the Scripture. I'll show it to you. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. That's Bethlehem Ephrata. David ancient home he traveled there from the village of the Nazareth in Galilee he took with him Mary whom he was engaged who was now expecting a child and while they were there time came for a baby to be born she gave birth to her son, firstborn son she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger why because there's no room for him in the inn. that's all it says they go into town they can't find a place They've got to have a place for Jesus to be born. Where do they go? They go to a place where a manger can be found. Where can the manger be found? To the very place, the Tower of the Flock, where they were raising the sacrificial animals, where they would wrap them in strips of cloth in order to protect them from harm on the way to the temple. Jesus was laid in the manger in the very location the Scripture told us all along He would be born. The place of the Passover sacrificial lambs. And not only that, but in Luke 2 8 through 10, it says that night there were who? Who watches over the flock? The shepherds were staying in the fields nearby. Why? Because they were at the tower of the flock, where they were guarding and watching over the Passover animals. And then suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. He said, I bring you good news that will bring joy to all people. And here's the sign. You'll find a baby lying in a manger wrapped in strips of cloth. What would that communicate to those shepherds raising the Passover animal? That they would find a child wrapped in cloth. That the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come. I want to show you one more thing and if that didn't blow your mind then I gotta find a new job because this to me is so significant in the book of Deuteronomy we read this about the Passover and unleavened bread Deuteronomy 16:1 through 2 he says honor the Lord your God celebrate the Passover each year in early spring and in the month of Abib for that was the month in which the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night Your Passover sacrifice may be from either the flock or the herd. And look at what it says. It must be sacrificed to the Lord your God as the designated place of worship, the place he chooses for his name to be honored. Again, words matter, statements matter. So not only do you sacrifice, but it has to be at the place that I've designated, the place for my name to be honored. Now in this time they recognized that is wherever the ark of the covenant was because they knew God put his name on the ark that's where the presence of the Lord is the angel of the Lord the angel of his presence all surrounded the ark of the covenant that's the place they had to sacrifice so when they were to bring the the sacrificial animals they brought it to the tabernacle wherever they were at David's time When he brought the tabernacle back to Jerusalem, they would bring it to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. When the temple of Solomon was built, they would bring it to the temple of Solomon. So the name God chose, the place where God chose for his name to be honored was wherever the presence of the Lord was. And that was the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the permanent location, the holy city chosen by God to have his name remembered for all time. This is also the location nearby where they would raise the Passover animals in Bethlehem. If you look, search that phrase, where my name shall be honored, it's connected with all the major sacrifices in Scripture, like the Day of Atonement. It's really interesting. But just like the Passover, after the sacrifice, the body of the sacrificial animal was taken to a specific place for burial, and it was prophesied Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. We know the story. But there's something significant about Jerusalem itself in connection with God's name. Now, there are many names for God in the Bible. Many names. We know of, of several. One in particular is El Shaddai. Somebody say El Shaddai. Make sure you're tracking with me. El Shaddai means God Almighty. That's what it means. The word Shaddai begins with the Hebrew letter Shin. Go ahead and throw that up on the screen. This is the Hebrew letter Shin. Now, The Hebrew language also has three aspects to it. There's an alphabetical language, a pictogram, and a numerical system. The pictogram uh, represents teeth, which means to press, destroy, or separate. Uh, There's a funny story about this particular letter I just saw this week. I thought I would share. Any Star Trek fans in here? Star Trek? Anybody at all? Come on, you don't have to be shy. We'll find you out anyway. In the back? Okay. So you know the greeting that Commander Spock would give to the people he would meet in Star Trek? Live long and prosper. Funny story, Leonard Nimoy was reading the script, and Spock had to go to his home planet, which they had never shot in the film before, and they had to greet one another, and he just thought How? it'd be weird for him not to have some type of custom in order to uh, greet other Vulcans in the story. And so he's like, you know, what what should we do? And so he was pulling from a memory from a small child when he saw in, in – uh, he is a jewish man and so they saw when he would go to synagogue one day They were doing a ceremony in reference to the presence of the lord and the rabbis were holding their hands up like this Which is the letter shin And so that's what he thought about and so he said I, th- I think we should just go like this and say live long and prosper.'" And the director thought hey, that that's fine. That's great. You know, we'll run with it. They filmed it. It became a cult sensation. It became a culture. And he said, I think it's so funny. People think they're greeting each other according to the Vulcan language. Really, they're just blessing each other in God's name. It's really funny. But that's live long and prosper. It's the letter Shin. But according to the Jewish Board of Jewish Education, Shin refers to the divine power, hence the name Almighty God. It's the first letter of the word Shaddai. It also appears, um, can appear in two forms in writing. Represents two kinds of divine wisdom. The concealed and the revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Shin, concealed and revealed. The letter Shin is also the first letter in the word Shabbat or Sabbath, representing the seventh day of creation, signifying total rest from God's week of work and peace and tranquility. The word Shin is also the first letter in the word Shalom, which means peace and perfection. And it is also the first letter in the word Shekinah, which is used to represent the divine presence of God coming from heaven to earth. This is an important letter, Shin. So this letter alone is connected with the peace of God, divine rest, revelation concealed and revealed, divine presence of God. So it makes sense if the letter Shin represents this in God's name and these aspects of God's name that it might be used in some way in conjunction with the city that was chosen, the very place El Shaddai chose, God Almighty chose for his name to be worshipped. Beloved, I cannot make this stuff up. I cannot make this up. When you look at the geography and topography of the city of Jerusalem, you'll notice really uh, a couple things. There are three mountains and three valleys. There is Mount Zion, Mount Moriah where the temple is, and the Mount of Olives. The three valleys are uh, the Hymnon Valley, the Central Valley, and the Kidron Valley. Now, when you look at this topography from an aerial view, go ahead and show that first image up there. You see the Himnan Valley, the Central Valley, and the Kidron Valley, and the mountains in between. Do you see it yet? Go ahead and go to the next one. The letter Shin. There is no stream or river in Jerusalem. Their main water source is the Gihon Spring. So literally, these valleys were carved out as God put waterfall on the mountains And it carved those valleys out as the water went through Jerusalem. The hand of God carved out the letter Shin, his name Shaddai, and put it in the city of Jerusalem. You will go where I have designated and declared my name to be honored. This is where you will offer the sacrifice. Where was Jesus crucified? In Jerusalem. Where was the sacrificial lamb born? In Bethlehem at the Tower of the Flock our God is an awesome God what is so powerful about this revelation what should give us hope is God made a covenant with Abraham on Mount Moriah in this city and his faithfulness with Isaac He Spared isaac's life and the lamb took his place god made a covenant with israel to get them out of egypt their bondage and bring them to this city And the blood of the lamb covered them and stood guard over them and delivered them from their captors as death passed by they walked on into freedom And god would ultimately Bring us into freedom again in this city as he makes a new covenant with us with his body and his blood And he took our place on the cross, and death has passed over us. What does this tell us? Beloved, it tells us that God always fulfills his word and his promises. Always fulfills his word and his promises. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did it back then, he is going to do it again. And the promises we have of ultimate rescue in the future are days that will be fulfilled. Look up, beloved. Your redemption draws nigh. Don't look down in discouragement. Look up. Let hope arise. Because Jesus is coming back. Those promises are a reality that should give us hope. That no matter what's going on in the world, and the city of Jerusalem is under attack right now. Thousands of missiles are coming into the city. Sometimes your life feels like that. It feels like you're being barraged from every direction. But the word of God says, But thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head up high. Why? Because that's where my help comes from, the maker of heaven and earth. It doesn't come from my own strength or what I can figure out in my own wisdom. It comes from the Lord of heaven's armies, El Shaddai, God Almighty. He took our place on the cross, and he will not let anyone take our place in the kingdom. We are his forevermore. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is always by your side. He's walking through your circumstances with you. He's bearing you up in his strength. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. And you might be saying, well, God, I don't know know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to endure this. I don't know how I'm going to overcome this. And Jesus is saying, look at what I've done. I took Isaac's place, and he made it. I took Israel's place, and he made it. And on the cross, I took your place. And, beloved, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. How do I know? Because we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of our testimony, it's the blood of the Lamb that enables us to endure as death passes over and we rise in His life forevermore. Let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes as we go into a time of prayer and response. I know that there are heavy hearts here today. There are people dealing and struggling with relationship issues, with health issues, with financial issues. There's issues of issues. But beloved, God is here. In the most powerful truth I can reveal to you, is He might have carved His name on the city, But the scripture says he has also put his name on the heart of every believer. His name is written on your heart if you know Christ. You belong to him, sealed by his Holy Spirit. The significance of the hour is only matched by the significance of who we are in Jesus Christ. And God wants to do a work in you. He wants you to encounter his heart. He wants you to know his love. He wants to strengthen you, build you up, encourage you, comfort you. The Holy Spirit's called the comforter for a reason. God wants to bring breakthrough in your circumstance. It just takes us recognizing, God, you're worthy of trust. You're worthy of my trust. I don't understand it, but today I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to hold fast to my faith as I wait for the promises to come, because I know you're faithful, and I know everything you've spoken will come to pass. Beloved, whatever's going on in your life, whatever you're struggling with, if it's a health issue, a relationship issue, I just encourage you, don't stay in your seat. Come forward. And let us pray for you. Let us partner together. Jesus said, when two or more are gathered, I'm right there. When two or more agree, I will hear, and I will go to work on your behalf to bring glory to my Father. God wants to do a work in this place. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, right now is the time. It says, today is the day of salvation. Call out to Him. Come forward, and we would be honored to lead you in the prayer that will change your life as you start a relationship with Christ. If you are, have been the believer that has been with, walked with Jesus for a long time, but that fire has dwindled and you want to get back to that place where you're just excited and on fire for the Lord, and you want to return to your first love, you come forward. Even now as we're talking, you come forward and we're going to pray for you that God kindles that fire, lights you up again, gives you a hope for the purpose that he has for your life. Whatever the Spirit is speaking, you respond. Our prayer team is ready. We're going to be asking God, God, give us words to proclaim over all that come forward. So wherever you are, you come forward in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for what you're about to do. In the name of Jesus.